Chapter 2, Parts 4-7 to seven, of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Second, Boyhood, Continued. 4. I do not want to leave the impression, which my last section may have conveyed, that at the age of thirteen or thereabouts I walked about with Mr. Siddons discussing doubt in a candid and intelligent manner, and maintaining theological positions. That particular conversation you must imagine with Mr. Siddons somewhat monologuing, addressing himself not only to my present self, but with an unaccustomed valiance to my absent father. What I may have said or not said, whether I did indeed dispute, or merely, and by a kind of accident implied objections, I have altogether forgotten long ago. A boy, far more than a man, is mentally a discontinuous being. The drifting chaos of his mind makes its experimental beginnings at a hundred different points and in a hundred different spirits and directions. Here he flashes into a concrete realization, here into a conviction unconsciously incompatible. Here is something originally conceived, here something uncritically accepted. I know that I criticized Mr. Siddons quite acutely and disbelieved in him. I know also that I accepted all sorts of suggestions from him quite unhesitatingly, and that I did my utmost to satisfy his standards and realize his ideals of me. Like an outer casing to that primordial creature of senses and dreams which came to the surface in the solitudes of the park, was my Siddonesque self, a high-minded and clean and brave English boy, conscientiously loyal to queen and country, athletic and a good sportsman, and acutely alive to good and bad form. Mr. Siddons made me aware of my clothed self as a visible object. I surveyed my garmented being in mirrors, and was trained to feel the awfulness of various other small boys who appeared transitorily in the smaller park when Lady Ladislaw extended her wide hospitality to certain benevolent London associations. Their ill-fitting clothing, their undisciplined outcries, their slouching, their bad throwing, and defective aspirates were made matters for detestation in my plastic mind. Those things, I was assured, placed them outside the pale of any common humanity. "'Very unfortunate and all that,' said Mr. Siddons, "'and uncommonly good of Lady Ladislaw to have them down. "'But dirty little cads, Stephen, dirty little cads, "'so don't go near em if you can help it.' "'They played an indecent sort of cricket, "'with coats instead of a wicket.' "'Mr. Siddons was very grave about games.' and the strict ritual and proper apparatus for games. He believed that Waterloo was won by the indirect influence of public school cricket, disregarding many other contributory factors. We did not play very much, but we practiced sedulously at a net in the paddock with the gardener and the doctor's almost grown-up sons. I thought missing a possible catch was an impropriety, I studiously maintained the correct attitude, alert and elastic, while I was fielding. Moreover, I had a shameful secret, that I did not really know where a ball ought to pitch. 
I wasn't clear about it, and I did not dare to ask. Also, until I was nearly thirteen, I couldn't bowl overarm. Such is the enduring force of early suggestion, my dear son, that I feel a faint twinge of shame as I set this down for your humiliated eyes. But so it was. May you be more precocious. Then I was induced to believe that I really liked hunting and killing things. In the depths of my being I was a gentle and primitive savage towards animals. I believed they were as subtle and wise as myself, and full of a magic of their own. But Mr. Siddons nevertheless got me out into the South Warren, where I had often watched the rabbits setting their silly cock-eared sentinels and lolloping out to feed about sundown and beguiled me into shooting a furry little fellow-creature. I can still see its eyelid quiver as it died, and carrying it home in triumph. On another occasion I remember I was worked up into a ferocious excitement about the rats in the old barn. We went ratting, just as though I was Tom Brown or Harry East, or any other of the beastly little models of cant and cruelty we English boys were trained to imitate. It was great sport. It was a tremendous spree. The distracted movements, the scampering and pawing of the little pink forefeet of one squawking little fugitive that I hit with a stick and then beat to a shapeless bag of fur, haunted my dreams for years. And then I saw the bowels of another still living victim that had been torn open by one of the terriers, and abruptly I fled out into the yard and was violently sick. The best of the fun was over, so far as I was concerned. My cousin saved me from the uttermost shame of my failure by saying that I had been excited too soon after my dinner. And also I collected stamps and bird's eggs. Mr. Siddons hypnotized me into believing that I really wanted these things. He gave me an egg cabinet for a birthday present, and told me exemplary stories of the wonderful collections other boys had made. My own natural disposition to watch nests and establish heaven knows what friendly intimacy with the birds. Perhaps I dreamt their mother might let me help to feed the young ones, gave place to a feverish artful hunting, a clutch, and then detestable process, the blowing of the egg. Of course we were very humane. We never took the nest, but just frightened off the sitting bird, and grabbed a warm egg or so. And the poor, perforated, rather damaged little eggshells accumulated in the drawers, against the wished-for but never actually realized day of glory, when we should meet another collector who wouldn't have something that we had, so far as it was for anything and not mere imbecile imitativeness, it was for that. And writing thus of eggs reminds me that I got into a row with Mr. Siddons for cruelty. I discovered there was the nest of a little tit in a hole between two stones in the rock bank that bordered the lawn. I found it out when I was sitting on the garden seat nearby, learning Latin irregular verbs. I saw the minute preposterous round birds going and coming and I found something so absurdly amiable and confiding about them. They sat balancing and oscillating on a standard rose, 
and cheeped at me to go, and then dived nestward, and gave away their secret out of sheer impatience, that I could not bring myself to explore further, and kept the matter altogether secret from the enthusiasm of Mr. Siddons. And in a few days there were no more eggs, and I could hear the hungry little nestlings making the minutest of fairy hullabaloos, the very finest spun silk of sound. A tremendous traffic in victual began, and I was the trusted friend of the family. Then, one morning, I was filled with amazement and anguish. There was a rock torn down and lying in the path. A paw had gone up to that little warm place. Across the gravel, shreds of the nest, and a wisp or so of down were scattered. I could imagine the brief horrors of that night attack. I started off, picking up stones as I went, to murder that sandy devil, the stable-cat. I got her once. Alas, that I am still glad to think of it! And just missed her as she flashed a ginger streak through the gate into the paddock. "'Now, Steve, now!' came Mr. Siddons' voice behind me. How can one explain things of that sort to a man like Siddons? I took my lecture on the utter caddishness of wanton cruelty in a black rebellious silence. The affair and my own emotions were not only far beyond my powers of explanation, but far beyond my power of understanding. Just then my soul was in shapeless and aimless revolt against something greater and higher and deeper and darker than Siddons, and his reproaches were no more than the chattering of a squirrel while a storm uproots great trees. I wanted to kill the cat. I wanted to kill whatever had made that cat. 5. Mr. Siddons it was who first planted the conception of life as a career in my mind. In those talks that did so much towards shaping me into the likeness of a modest, reserved, sporting, seemly, clean and brave, patriotic and decently slangy young Englishman, he was constantly reverting to that view of existence. He spoke of failures and successes, talked of statesmen and administrators, peerages and Westminster Abbey. Nelson, he said, was once a clergyman's son like you. England has been made by the sons of the clergy. He talked of the things that led to failure, and the things that had made men prominent and famous. Discursiveness ruins a man, I remember him saying. Choose your goal and press to it. Never do anything needlessly odd. It's a sort of impertinence to all the endless leaders of the past who created our traditions. Do not commit yourself hastily to opinions, but once you have done so, stick to them. The world would far rather have a firm man wrong than a weak man hesitatingly right. Stick to them. One has to remember, I recall him meditating, far over my head with his face upturned, that institutions are more important than views. Very often one adopts a view only to express one's belief in an institution. Men can do with almost all sorts of views, but only with certain institutions. All this doubt doesn't touch a truth like that. 
one does not refuse to live in a house because of the old symbols one finds upon the door, if they are old symbols. Out of such private contemplations he would descend suddenly upon me. What are you going to do with your life, Steve? he would ask. There is no happiness in life without some form of service. Where do you mean to serve? With your bent for science and natural history, it wouldn't be difficult for you to get into the ICS. I doubt if you do anything at the law. It's a rough game, Steve, though the prizes are big. Big prizes the lawyers get. I've known a man in the Privy Council under forty, and that without anything much in the way of a family. But always one must concentrate. The one thing England will not stand is a loafer, a wool-gatherer, a man who goes about musing and half-awake. It's our energy. We're Western. It's that has made us all we are. I knew whither that pointed. Never, so far as I can remember, did Mr. Siddons criticize either myself or my father directly, but I understood with the utmost clearness that he found my father indolent and hesitating, and myself more than a little bit of a mollycoddle, and an urgent need of pulling together. 6. Harbury went on with that process of suppressing, encrusting, hardening, and bracing up which Mr. Siddons had begun. For a time I pulled myself together very thoroughly. I am not ungrateful nor unfaithful to Harbury. In your turn you will go there. You will have to live your life in this British world of ours, and you must learn its language and manners, acquire its reserves, and develop the approved toughness and patterning of cuticle. Afterwards, if you please, you may quarrel with it, but don't, when the time comes, quarrel with the present conditions of human association, and think it is only with Harbury you quarrel. What man has become, and may become, beneath the masks and impositions of civilization, in his intimate texture and in the depths of his being, I begin now in my middle age to appreciate. No longer is he an instinctive savage, but a creature of almost incredible variability and wonderful new possibilities marvels undreamt of, power still inconceivable, an empire beyond the uttermost stars. Such is man's inheritance. But for the present, until we get a mastery of those vague and mighty intimations, at once so perplexing and so reassuring, if we are to live at all in the multitudinousness of human society, we must submit to some scheme of clumsy compromises and conventions or other, and for us Stratons, the Harbury system is the most convenient. You will have to go to the old school. I went to Randall's. I just missed getting into college. I was two places below the lowest successful boy. I was Maxton's fag to begin with, and my chief chum was Raymond, who is your friend also, and who comes so often to this house. I preferred water to land, boats to cricket, because of that difficulty about pitch I have already mentioned. But I was no great sportsman. Raymond and I shared a boat, and spent most of the time we gave to it under the big trees near Dartpool Lock, reading or talking. We would pull up to Sandy Hall perhaps once a week. I never rode in any of the eights, though I was urged to do so, 
I swam fairly well and got my colours on the strength of my diving. On the whole, I found Harbury a satisfactory and amusing place. I was neither bullied, nor do I think I greatly bullied. And of all that furtive and puerile lasciviousness of which one hears so many hints nowadays, excitable people talk of it as though it was the most monstrous and singular of vices, instead of a slightly debasing, but almost unavoidable, and very obvious result of heaping boys together under the inefficient control of a timid, pretentious class of men, of such uncleanness, as I say, scarcely more than a glimpse and a whisper and a vague tentative talk or so reached me. Little more will reach you, for that kind of thing, like the hells of Swedenborg, finds its own. I had already developed my growing instinct for observance to a very considerable extent under Siddons, and at Harbury I remember myself, and people remember me, as an almost stiffly correct youth. I was pretty good at most of the work, and exceptionally so at history, geology, and the biological side of natural science. I had to restrain my interest in these latter subjects, lest I should appear to be a swat, and a modern-side swat at that. I was early in the sixth, and rather a favorite with old Latimer. He incited me to exercise what he called a wholesome influence on the younger boys, and I succeeded in doing this fairly well without any gross interventions. I implied rather than professed soundly orthodox views about things in general, and I was extremely careful to tilt my straw hat forward over my nose so as just not to expose the crown of my head behind, and to turn up my trousers with exactly that width of margin which the judgment of my fellow-creatures had decided was correct. My socks were spirited without being vulgar, and the ties I wore were tied with a studious avoidance of either slovenliness or priggish neatness. I wrote two articles in the Harboronian, became something of a debater in the literacy and political, conducted many long conversations with my senior contemporaries upon religion, politics, sport, and social life, and concealed my inmost thoughts from every human being. Indeed, so effective had been the training of Harbury and Mr. Siddons that I think at that time I came very near concealing them from myself. I could suppress wonder, I could pass by beauty as if I did not see it. Almost, I think, I did not see it for a time, and yet I remember it in those years too, a hundred beautiful things. Harbury itself is a very beautiful place. The country about it has all the charm of river scenery in a settled and ancient land, and the great castle and piled town of Wetmore, cliffs of battlemented grey wall, rising above a dense cluster of red roofs, form the background to innumerable gracious prospects of great stream-fed trees, level meadows of buttercups, sweeping curves of osier and rush-rimmed river, the playing fields, and the sedgy, lily-spangled levels of Avonlea. The college itself is mostly late Tudor and Stuart brickwork, very ripe and mellow now, but the great grey chapel with its glorious east window floats over the whole like a voice singing in the evening. 
and the evening cloudscapes of Harbury are a perpetual succession of glorious effects, now serene, now mysteriously threatening and profound, now towering to incredible heights, now revealing undreamt-of distances of luminous color. Assuredly I must have delighted in all those aspects, or why should I remember them so well? But I recall, I mean, no confessed recognition of them, no deliberate going out of my spirit, open and unashamed to such things. I suppose one's early adolescence is necessarily the period of maximum shyness in one's life. Even to Raymond I attempted no extremities of confidence. Even to myself I tried to be the thing that was expected of me. I professed a modest desire for temperate and tolerable achievement in life, though deep in my lost depths I wanted passionately to excel. I worked hard, much harder than I allowed to appear, and I said I did it for the credit of the school. I affected a dignified loyalty to queen and country and church. I pretended a stoical disdain for appetites and delights and all the arts, though now and then a chance fragment of poetry would light me like a fire or a lovely picture stir unwanted urgencies, though visions of delight haunted the shadows of my imagination, and did not always fly when I regarded them. But, on the other hand, I affected an interest in games that I was far from feeling. Of some boys I was violently jealous, and this also I masked beneath a generous appreciation. Certain popularities I applauded while I doubted, Whatever my intimate motives, I became less and less disposed to obey them, until I had translated them into a plausible rendering of the accepted code. If I could not so translate them, I found it wise to control them. When I wanted urgently one summer to wander by night over the hills toward Kestering, and lie upon heather, and look up at the stars and wonder about them, I cast about and at last hit upon the well-known and approved sport of treacling for moths, as a cloak for so strange an indulgence. I must have known even then what a mask and front I was, because I knew quite well how things were with other people. I listened politely and respected and understood the admirable explanations of my friends. When some fellow got a scholarship unexpectedly, and declared it was rotten bad luck on the other chap, seeing the papers he had done, and doubted whether he shouldn't resign. I had an intuitive knowledge that he wouldn't resign. And I do not remember any time in my career as the respectful listener to Mr. Siddon's aspirations for service and devotion, when I did not perceive quite clearly his undeviating eye upon a bishopric. He thought of gaiters, though he talked of wings. How firmly the bonds of an old relationship can hold one. I remember when a few years ago he reached that toiled-for goal. I wrote in a tone of gratified surprise that in this blatant age such disinterested effort as his should receive even so belated a recognition. Yet what else was there for me to write? We all have our citizens, with whom there are no alternatives but insincerity or a disproportionate destructiveness. 
I am still largely Siddons-ized, little son, and so, I fear, you will have to be. 7. The clue to all the perplexities of law and custom lies in this, that human association is an artificiality. We do not run together naturally and easily, as grazing deer do, or feeding starlings, or a shoal of fish. We are a sort of creature which is only resuming association, after a long heredity of extreme separation. We are beings strongly individualized, we are dominated by that passion which is no more and no less than individuality in action. Jealousy. Jealousy is a fierce insistence on ourselves, an instinctive intolerance of our fellow creatures, ranging between an insatiable aggression as its buoyant phase and a savage defensiveness when it is touched by fear. In our expansive moments, we want to dominate and control everyone and destroy every unlikeness to ourselves. In our recessive phases, our homes are our castles, and we want to be let alone. Now all law, all social order, all custom, is a patch-up and a concession to the separating passion of self-insistence. It is an evasion of conflict and social death. Human society is as yet only a truce and not an alliance. When you understand that, you will begin to understand a thousand perplexing things in legislation and social life. You will understand the necessity of all those restrictions that are called conventionality, and the inevitableness of the general hostility to singularity. To be exceptional is to assert a difference, to disregard the banked-up forces of jealousy, and break the essential conditions of the social contract. It invites either resentment or aggression. So we all wear much the same clothing, affect modesty, use the same phrases, respect one another's rights, and pretend a greater disinterestedness than we feel. You have to face this reality, as you must face all reality. This is the reality of laws and government. This is the reality of customs and institutions, a convention between jealousies. This is reality, just as the cat's way with the nestlings was reality, and the squealing rat when smashed in a paroxysm of cruelty and disgust in the barn. But it isn't the only reality. Equally real is the passionate revolt of my heart against cruelty, and the deep fluctuating impulse not to pretend, to set aside fear and jealousy, to come nakedly out of the compromises and secretive methods of everyday living, into the light, into a wide impersonal love, into a new way of living for mankind. End of chapter 2